morning we're continuing our looking at this incredibly significant and central accomplishment of God in the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus. I was reading or looking at something. I can't remember whether I was reading it or whatever it was, but some kind of way. And the pastor, and this is not a criticism, but I think it just says something that we need to identify. And he was talking about the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Christ before creation. I'm sorry, in in creating. Then the ministry of Christ in the incarnation, beginning with the conception and the ministry of Christ during his lifetime, and then the death and the resurrection of Christ. And typically what happens in Christian circles, we stop there. Do you ever notice? The death and the resurrection. And if it were just the death and the resurrection and nothing else, we wouldn't be here today. There would be a man raised But without the ascension, our being included in that man raised would not have been accomplished. So it is the death, the resurrection, and as I think we ought always to say, the ascension and exaltation, because that's the capstone. So as we continue to look at this, this morning I think you should have on your outline, we have seen that Christ had to be both, and write in there your answers. Everybody take your pen and write your answers in those two blanks. Look at the first statement in your outline. The answer to this is centrally significant to the entire work of God on our behalf. If this answer, if these two blanks are not filled incorrectly, then we don't have a salvation. And so, who'd like to raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Don't bellow it out. Who'd like to raise your hand and give us the answer? Anybody want to raise your hand and give us the answer? Any hands raised and give us the answer? James' arm going to fall off, isn't it? You seen James over here? Everybody say, he doesn't see James. He doesn't see James. Well, anybody who wears a red shirt like that, I certainly see him. What's the answer, James? Okay. Human and divine, God and man. Yes. Here's how we must have it. This is the core. In order to save us, is required that the Son of God clothe himself with our humanity so that in Christ, God and man are joined relationally in such a union that this man 
is able to bear our sin to the cross and pay the penalty in himself by dying and so fully satisfy the justice of God and in doing so, the Son of God, the divine Son of God, being in such intimate relationship with this man and to this man, also experiences the fullness of what it is to bear our sin unto death without himself dying. Amen? And so, oh, let me open my notes. I don't want to start. I will drift away from my notes if I'm not careful. The core of Christianity and the glory of Christianity is the immeasurable glory and incredible grace of God that he would condescend. You know what condescend means? Lower himself, come down. That he would so defer to his fallen people by taking on himself in the Son the weaknesses, the finiteness of our humanity. And too often as believers, we don't think about this. We typically think first about the glory and the greatness of this great work of God from our perspective mostly. Amen? We talk about the greatness of our salvation. We talk about what happened to me and who I am, what I was, and what God did. And that's great, but that's all secondary. Where is the greatness when the Hebrew writer says, this great salvation? Where is the greatness in this salvation? In whom? God himself. God the Father. Sending the Son. The Son procuring our salvation at the cross. And then the Son sending the Holy Spirit to make that salvation practically, experientially a reality in us, whom he saves, correct? And binds us to God so irrevocably that we are then united to God himself relationally forever. Second Peter 1.4 tells you that. And so that's the first sentence of the notes today. We have seen that Christ had to be what? Both human or, I'm sorry, divine and human or God and man, however you want to put it. I typically would say divine and human, but it's okay. In order to be God's Messiah to redeem us from the curse of sin. That's the prerequisite. The incarnation is a prerequisite. So this is what we read, remember, in John 1, 14. Remember in John 1? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him that were made. And without him was not anything made that was made. Correct? So we're talking about a divine being who is as divine as God, yet separate from God, a distinct 
person. Do we see that? And so who is this logos, this word, this divine being? How do we know him? Well, what does verse 14 say? And the word became flesh. For what purpose? And he dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we, John is saying we, the disciples, physically, and we, of course, today, spiritually, and we have beheld his what? Glory, that glory as of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. So there we see the same truth. Divine, human, in a relational unity. So that when we see this man, this man, on the dusty roads of Galilee. Walking along. Sitting down and eating and drinking. Talking with people. When we see this man sleeping. When we see this man weeping at a funeral. When we see this man, this normal man, what are we seeing? We're seeing visibly before us God himself. Correct? And in this man, we are seeing what a fellowship with God is to look like. An intimacy, a yielding to, an obedience. And so when we see in this man, not so much hear from him, but mostly what we see from him, therefore what we see causes the what we hear to be made meaningful. What we see causes the hearing to be made meaningful. We see in this man a love and devotion for God. Whose life causes us to see God in such a reality that we say, I see that man. But when I see that man, I see and I experience God himself. Amen. And then when that man begins to speak and when that man begins to do things. Those things in that speech is a revelation and an unfolding and an unpacking of not only the reality but the meaning of the fellowship that that man has with the Father. Do we see that? Do we understand that? So what we're seeing in Jesus, I believe it's not so much what he does through actions and healings and whatever, or what he says. But I think preeminently what we see in him, which is the most critical and the most astounding revelation, is that we see that he and God are one in fellowship. 
And every word speaks that, doesn't it? Every deed speaks that. So what in my mind, and I hope that this is of the Holy Spirit, says that the most critical issue of our lives as believers, by the way, none of this is in the notes. This happens. The most critical issue in our lives as believers is not what we are doing, not what we are saying, but with whom are we fellowshipping? And the closer and the more intimate and the more powerful and the more regular and consistent, et cetera, et cetera, of our fellowship with God, then the doings and the sayings and the goings and the activity, the function, will flow from the fellowship. So let's make sure we are a people whose primary goal as believers in testifying to the reality of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit in us is the same way that Jesus exemplified the Father through his fellowship. Amen? That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing what it looks like for God and man to be united in intimate fellowship. And this is the heartbeat and the goal of creation itself and the goal of the new creation. So the truth of these two natures, human and divine, are joined together in John 1.14. The divine word became flesh or became human. And this is the mystery and the majesty and the wonder of the incarnation. That Yahweh himself of the Old Testament. Remember Yahweh? Every time you see the, the capital L, the lowercase capital O-R-D, you, you remember that? Lord in that sense. Over 6,300 times in your Bible, it should be that way. That's the, the, the word that stands for Yahweh, the name of the God of Israel himself. And so what does Jesus say in John eight fifty eight? Before Abraham was what? Ego Amy, I am. He makes himself one with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And no wonder the Jewish leaders picked up stones to kill him. He's making himself to be another God. Not the God, the same God, but another God. So the God of glory, remember in Acts 2, uh, what's his name? Stephen sees the God of glory. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham in the, you remember before in the Ur of the Chaldees. The God of glory, the creator, the God of glory, the creator, and the sustainer of all took to himself our humanity. Why? In all of its intrinsic, intrinsic weaknesses except for our sin, he clothes himself in this audacious and momentous act of self-denial. The eternal and infinite Son of God, who knew no limitations as to his divinity, voluntarily assumed our limitations by clothing himself with the weaknesses of our humanity. And you say, well, you've already said this. I need to say it over and over again because it's not that significant to too many. Listen to Paul's emphasis on the necessity of Christ's humanity. 
And I don't know whether your notes have this, but I don't know whether the word man is empathy. Okay, you see the word man, what do you call it, uh, embolden. That's humanity, our humanity, flesh. Therefore, just as sin came through the world through what? One man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. But the gift, I'm, I'm skipping a few verses here and there, but the gift of, but the free gift is not like the trespass for it. If many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So you see again, one man died, another man redeems. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, life, righteous life, righteousness reign in life through one man. I've never learned how to read. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. That's Romans five twelve to 19. It's a very significant passage for us to remember. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the, the representation of all of humanity in Adam, our forebear, so that when he died, I'm sorry, when he sinned, death came into the world, and he physically died, and we all die. Why? Because we are all under sin. So we have all inherited through his, if you would, spiritual genes, if you would, passed on what he did to us. And in order for us to be delivered of that, we needed to have a reordering of our genetic, spiritual genetic content or structure. And so another man has to come whose genes are not polluted by sin so that he can take to himself our sin and our death, condemn it in the flesh, and raise to, rise to new life as the everlasting, eternal human being and confer that humanity upon us, that new nature upon us. So in the resurrection of Christ, God declared that the incarnate Son, God in man, is the divine mediator. In raising Christ from the dead, he said, this is my Son. He is the divine mediator. What he has done in his death, I have accepted as good. On behalf of my people. So now as in Christ. As to his humanity is qualified. Because he is now. Let me read it. As I say. Now is Christ. As to his humanity. Now you notice how I continually say this. I don't want to just say Christ. I want to differentiate between the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Because Christ is now qualified to represent us. Christ is now qualified to inherit us, but he's not qualified as to his divinity because as to his divinity, this is his inherent right. Do you understand that? He is God, and as God, he doesn't inherit anything. All things are his forever, correct? Do we see that? Do we see the difference? 
And so these activities that accrue to us, accrue to us, yes, because he is divine, but not totally on the basis of his divinity, but they accrue to us through his humanity. Do we understand that? Humanity. And so Christ as to his humanity. In his humanity, Jesus obeyed God. In the humanity of Christ, in the humanity of Christ, the Son of God was totally obedient. Do we see that? In the humanity, he laid down his life. In the humanity, he did these works. Why do we emphasize, why does the Bible emphasize humanity? Because it's on the basis of humanity that we died. Therefore, on the basis of another man's humanity, we can be made alive. And it's important, I think, to make the distinction here, which sometimes we don't make. So now as Christ, as to his humanity, is qualified, he's qualified by the authoritative decree of God to eternally represent us before God as a reward of his obedience. In other words, one man was created and given the decree to earn the right to have eternal life with God through his obedience. Right? One man, Adam, was told, don't eat... And the inference is, through your obedience, you will qualify to have the right to eternal life. He doesn't qualify. Now, we were all in him. Therefore, none of us could ever qualify. And so, the Son of God becomes incarnate. And in this human being, this human being, Jesus, qualifies as to his humanity to earn the right to confer eternal life and blessings and forgiveness on God's people because he has earned the right according to his absolute obedience. Do we see that? So in one way, we are not saved by good works, those of ourselves, but we are definitely saved by the good works of Jesus Christ, correct? So we have to be careful. Good works never come into it. Well, of course they do. The good works of one man are the basis or is the basis, if you want to encapsulated is the basis of our salvation. So Jesus earned the right to be raised from the dead. The Son of God earned the right through the humanity of Jesus Christ, through the humanity in, uh, in, in this ma- as this man, Jesus Christ, to earn our salvation. Does that help us a little bit about this earning thing? And this unqualified and qualified thing. Because if we're not careful, as believers, we will use these terms too loosely. No one can qualify. Well, of course. No one except one man. And he has been qualified how? As a human being. In unity and fellowship with the Son of God. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit.
He's without sin. You remember that? What does it say? Tempted in all ways except for sin. Where does it say that? Hebrews what? 4.15. Okay. So listen to this. As for me, God is a speaker. Yahweh is speaking. Psalm 2, 6 and 8. Very important psalm. As for me, I have installed my king. Oh, God has installed his king. Okay. Now, in a time frame, it has to do with David, but this transcends David. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion, the city of the great king. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, mm, now, the, uh, the one who is installed as the king is now speaking. Do we see that? God has said, I've installed my, my, my uh, what does it say? Help me remember, my king upon my throne. Right? I've installed my king. Now, the king who is installed is going to say back to God, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. Now, remember, this is after the resurrection. This is talking about ascension. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations of your, as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Why is that so important? Why is that so important? Why is Matthew twenty eighteen? And 19 and 20, so important. You remember, all authority has been given to, me, given to me in heaven and earth. Go what? Therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Why is that so important? Because it's the accomplishment of God's original intention in creating humanity. Let us make man in our what? Image and according to our likeness. And we see that. And then we see that put into really practical, obvious terms when we come to Abraham. And we begin what is called the Abrahamic covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant of having a nation through one man is really the moving forward of God's purpose as stated in Genesis one twenty six to 28. Because when you look at verse 28, remember, go out and what? Subdue and, subdue and rule over the nations, over the world. This is God's purpose, to have a people in whom he is glorified as he dwells with them, as he and his people are relationally one forever in fellowship. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man's disobedience, so we inherit eternal life through another man's obedience. Now, I've said all this in order to accentuate the necessity that Christ as to his humanity was given God's authority to represent or include us in his death and resurrection. Do we have that now? Is that firmly in our minds? It's not so much as, well, he's the son of God, therefore, no. He's the son of God as the son of man. We have to make sure we get the two together. Now, as a consequence, this risen man, this 
eternal God-man, if you would, is given God's authority to represent or include us before the throne of God in his exaltation. As this man rose from the dead, he must now ascend to the throne of God in order to authoritatively begin or inaugurate the good of his salvation purchase at the cross. He has to go to the throne, and he has to, from the throne, inaugurate the great work of God that he purchased at the cross and is in him potentially in the resurrection. It's all in him potentially in the resurrection, but it has not, if you would, the good of it has not yet been released until he commands it to be released. Correct? It's all in him. He doesn't get any more potentially in him. He has it all in the resurrection. But we ain't got it yet until he's what? Glorified. Therefore, we read in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. what do we read? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now, the question before us this morning is, when did Christ, the ris- by the way, all authority it been given to me, to me as to my humanity. We, do we have that? Remember last week, all authority is not given to the eternal son of God. He has all authority intrinsically as the son. Do you remember we went through that last week? Correct? So why is he given all authority if he already has all authority as the eternal creator? You mean to tell me he needs authority as the creator to get having authority over the creation? Well, of course not. He has authority over the creation because he's God the Son. He has it intrinsically because of his divinity. (laughs) So what are we talking about? Who gets the authority? He is now given all authority as to his what? Humanity. Therefore, there will be a man who rules and reigns over the creation. A God-man. A living God-man forever. The incarnation begins in the womb of Mary. And when does it end? Never. It never ends. He's still incarnate. As much today as he was then. At least in one way as much today. When did Christ the risen man receive this authority? Now, in looking at this answer... We're waiting in murky waters. You know what murky waters are? Muddy waters. Let's remember that. Why? Because the scripture makes no clear, specific statement. Anytime the scripture doesn't make a clear, specific <coughs> statement about something, something, we have to be careful. It could be that God wants to give us the answer by applying one scripture to others and creating an understanding of what God has done. So there is no explicit statement in the Bible that God is a triunity. Is that right? The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Do you know the word resurrection is not in the Old Testament? Well, therefore, there's no resurrection because it's not specific. Well, of course it's there. It's there implied all over the place. And so when we come to this answer, we have to look at a few things with implication, but be very careful not to make it a doctrinal issue of substance so much that we fight over and we contend back and forth and my whatever. 
we're going to talk for a moment or two about what I think could be. But I could be what? Wrong. Or I could be right. Which one is it? I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things, shh, shh, secret, belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our folks. We want our answer to be as clear and specific as possible by asking if our answers violate any known scriptures or any accepted interpretations. Well, I don't believe in interpreting the Bible. Of course you do believe in interpreting the Bible. You know, some people say, oh, I don't know, I just want to read the Bible and know what it says. Well, the only way for us to know what it says is for the Holy Spirit to explain it to us. So, what does it mean for God to be incarnate? There is an interpretation, a restating of that word incarnate into other words and concepts so we can understand it, correct? Do we see that? Biblical exegesis, biblical interpretation. So, it's Okay. As long as we are standing on known scripture and adhering to known and accepted scriptural doctrine. Although the Bible is not explicit when Jesus received all authority, like other areas that lack such specificity, we can glean from some implicit scriptures. So let me go through this in the next 35 minutes and do as best we can. First, Let's understand that before his resurrection, Christ was under the authority of the Spirit. We know that. I I can skip those scriptures, right? When the Son of God was incarnate, he came submitted to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So everything that Jesus had or the Son of God had as to authority as his humanity in, in relation to his humanity was a submitted or a delegated authority. Do we see that? This man has a delegated authority in his earthly life. He has been given it to by God the Father, and it is he is under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing after Jesus is baptized, what does the Bible say? He was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He didn't do it because he wanted to necessarily within himself or he thought it was the right thing and so on. He was led by the Spirit. Every word that came out of his mouth was Spirit-inspired. Every action was Spirit-led. If I cast out Satan by what? The Holy Spirit. So everything, he is a totally spiritual man. He is the only truly charismatic. Correct? I mean, them who want to knock charismatics, wow, you need to be careful. This man is a charismatic man, meaning what? He is living by the gift and in the gift and gifts of the Holy Spirit continually. So he's under authority. Remember the centurion? Where is that? Luke 8? I could be wrong there. Luke 7? 7 and 8? Oh, yeah, Luke 7, 8. Okay. I knew there was an 8 in there somewhere, Bertus. Bird is just saying, and so what is this authority? This I gotta get going, gotta get going. Centurion, I'm under authority. I also am a man under authority. I recognize, John, that you're under authority. How do I recognize? By what you're doing. You're doing what you're doing in authority because someone is giving you that authority. Your authority is derived 
as a human being. We know that it's not intrinsic in him as a human being because of he as a human being, but it's given to him. I know you're under authority because no man could do these things. I also am a man under authority. I say go and they go and I do this and whatever. And Jesus didn't argue, oh, no, no, I'm the son of God. I'm not, no, no, he's under authority. As to his humanity, Christ fulfilled the Old Testament type of the high priest. Remember, the high priest would go into the tabernacle and he would shed the blood. And he'd present the blood into the holy place. And if and when the blood was accepted, what would the priest do? He would return from the holy place. And he would bless the people. So I think I'm not wanting to skip something here. Now that is a sacrifice was accepted, Christ has given all authority. Okay, all authority. When did this happen? When did Jesus receive this authority? First of all, when did he receive it? First, after his death and before his resurrection, he entered into the presence of God. Do you remember that in Hebrews 9? Jesus died. And according to Hebrews 9, when he died, in some way, and Brenda asked me this week, last week, in some way, he now having an incorporeal body, a body without flesh, some way, the incarnation doesn't cease to exist at his death. His body has died, but in some very mysterious way, which I absolutely have no idea how this works, the soul of this man in intimate fellowship and unity with the nature of the Son of God enters into the very presence of God the Father with the blood, and the Father accepts it. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. And I believe the reason we say it that way is because he leaves the tabernacle and comes out to the people as Jesus does in the resurrection. He could have received the authority of God at that point. He could have. Or God exalted Christ at his, to his right hand after raising him from the dead. Now, let me make sure we see that. After his death and before the resurrection, we know the blood is accepted. Do we see that? He comes forth from the grave in the resurrection. He could have come forth from the grave already having received the total authority given to him by God the Father as to his humanity to rule and reign. That could be. Do we see that? Do I believe it is? I don't know. I am as much settled with that as I am with the next part of it. Are you okay? It could happen. Or something strange happens. <clears throat> On the day of the resurrection, remember Mary sees Jesus and thinks it's the gardener. And he says, Mary, and her eyes are open. <gasps> And Jesus says to her in John 20, 17, do not cling, hold on, be clinging, be touching. The word can be any number of those things. It can be any number of those things, cling, touch, holding on to. It can be any number of them acceptably. 
Do not be clinging, holding on, touching me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Going up to the Father. Remember, ascending means to go up. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend or I am ascending. And now that's the present tense. To my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. So that's what he tells her. Don't be touching me, for I have not yet ascended. I am ascending. Now, that could be taken, I'm going to be ascending, and so you don't need to be hanging on to me. I'm going to be here for a little while. I'm going to be ascending. It could be that. I don't know. I'm not very much liking that interpretation, but could it be that? Could it be? I'm going to be here for a while, Mary, so you don't have to hold on to me anymore. Are are you with me today? Could it be that, Anton? Sure could. I'm going to be here for a while. You know, you haven't seen me for years. I'm back from Afghanistan. You don't have to hang on. Uh, It's okay. I'm going to be around for, oh, oh, okay, okay. It could be that. I'm going to be ascending. That ascend could be down the road or could be immediately. But look, after this, in Matthew 28, the other women, remember, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. In other words, where you at? And they came to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now, look at me. Look, look. Why didn't he say, hey, 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 get on my feet, man. I'm going to be here for a little while. You don't have to hold on to me, Judy. I'm going to be here. Just go tell my, I'm coming on. Come on, come on. Get going. You know, don't hang around here. Get going around the ministry. You know, he could have said that, but he doesn't. And there is no real time lag here. We're not talking about three days later. We're talking about within the same context of the resurrection morning. Mary sees Jesus, who, who, and then we get the account of these other women. One's holding on, a clinging, don't touch me. For I'm not yet ascended, but I am ascending. Then a few moments later, what? They're grabbing his feet, and what does he say? Nothing. He doesn't kick him away. So I remember when I first read that, I, I, the Lord really arrested me. And I said, wait a minute, why? Could it be that Jesus did not want Mary to cling to him because he had not yet returned to the Father in his new earth, his new resurrection body to be exalted? Could it be? Sure. What we do know is that after his resurrection, Jesus exercised new authority, an authority that he did not exercise before the resurrection. How do I know that? There's something that Jesus does after his resurrection that he had no authority to do before the resurrection. Now, you may have looked at the notes and already know it, but what was it? There was something Jesus did immediately after his resurrection that he had no authority as to his humanity to do before the resurrection. Before the resurrection, he was leading, being led by the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection, he was directing the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that in John chapter 20? And he met with his disciples that evening. Greetings, peace I give to you. And then what does he say? Receive what? The Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. In other words, now he, as as to his humanity, get this, as to his humanity, he is commanding the Holy Spirit. 
do we, do we see the awesomeness, awesomeness of the deference of God? Does this soak into your soul? Oh, God is not only allowing David, but he is decreeing. That this man, in such unity with himself in the Son, is given authority to command God according to the will of God. Do we see the deference there? Do you know what I mean? The deferring to the use of that all the new creation, that the entire reality of the new creation is now in the hands of a man according to the decreed authority of God the Father. Now all creation as to its fulfillment and culmination and existence is in the hands of of a man who is not unilateral or independent of the Son of God, but who is in eternal incarnational relationship and intimacy and oneness with the Son of God. This is called the hypostatic union. I want us to see, not only is there a man, but I want us to see the mind-blowing deference of our God. That the greatest leader of all eternity was first and foremost the greatest servant. Therefore, in order to become a godly leader, you must first walk the road of a servant and have the attitude of a servant. Otherwise, you will never lead in a godly way for his purposes. And too many in the church don't get this. So he breathed on them, John 20, 22 and 23. I have it in your notes. Now Christ, as, his, as to his humanity, is exercising and will always exercise supreme authority by giving the Holy Spirit, which he would not have been able to do before his exaltation. Listen to these words in John 7. Remember, Jesus is at the festival. On the last day of the festival, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. We see that in John 20, correct? Why? For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. Why? Because Jesus as Christ as to his humanity had not been given authority to give the Holy Spirit. Do we see it? Do we see it? What a God this is. The deference, the deferring to, the use of humanity to proclaim his glory. (gasps) So the important here issue is not which is correct, before the resurrection or after. But what's important is that Christ as to his humanity, Jesus, 
That's the name of Christ as to his humanity is Jesus. Has been exalted to the highest place, which we'll discuss next week. So every time we use the name Jesus, we're talking about the eternal incarnate son of God as to his humanity. Amen. Amen. So next week, Keith will be back to talk about uh, some issues. And then week after next, we'll start talking about the eternal three roles of God the son in putting in creating God's eternal purpose of reality in us. Bye.